Welcome to the audio channel of the Reverend Dr. C.H.E. Sadoffel. His purpose is to preach Christ, teach the Bible, and make disciples. Now let us open our Bibles and our hearts as we listen to him proclaim the Word of God. Church, I would invite the congregation to stand and please turn to Psalm chapter 9, verse 1. As we will first pray and then read the Word of God. Psalm chapter 9, verse 1. Let us pray. And now we humble ourselves before God Almighty, whose grace has gifted us and whose love has saved us. Patiently now we wait for thee. Your word is a lamp to our paths and a light to our feet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen his servant to deliver a word of truth, so that many to Jesus will come and meet. Amen. Psalm number 9, verses 1 to 12 says, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne judging righteously. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins, and you have uprooted the cities. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare among the people his deeds. For he who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Please be seated. So church, the title of this morning's message is How to Hope in God's justice. Now the reality is many folks don't like hearing about God's justice. They delight hearing about God's mercy, His love, His grace. And all of God's attributes are wonderful. All of God's attributes are splendid. But we don't worship grace. We worship God who is graceful. And when we worship, understand better, and come closer to God, we must also appreciate and discern that he is a God of justice because he is just. And the more we know about God, the more we know about ourselves, the more we will be able to better imitate our precious Lord, and the more adept we will be to navigate life through the godly path that God has prescribed for us. So this morning we're going to be in Psalm chapter 9, verses 3 to 12. Last time we introduced Psalm number 9 overall. And we said that Psalm number 9 is a hymn of hope that teaches us how to hope in God's justice. And in Psalm 9, 1 to 2, we find King David praising God in the midst of a trial. And in praising God, David solidifies his faith and fortifies his strength in the Lord. It is then that he steps onto the stage of his earthly realities, being fortified in God's strength, that he is able to stand in the midst of turmoil. So today now in Psalm chapter 9, verses 3 to 12, what David is going to do is he makes an affirmation of what God has done in the past 
and that gives him present confidence. And David's present confidence is rooted in the fact that God is the righteous king over everything. And he is the righteous king whose sovereign justice will triumph. David begins by saying, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you. The reality is the godly person is going to have lots and lots of enemies because they are friends with God. In fact, the friendlier you are with God, the more enemies you are going to have. It's a Bible fact. But the reassuring hope is that if God is with us, it matters little who is against us. And if God is pleased with one of his servants, it doesn't matter who around him or her is displeased with them. For David says, when they stumble and perish before you, he does not say, when they stumble and perish before me. Because in a time of turmoil, when David now flees to God and seeks refuge in him and is now fortified in God's stronghold, his enemies are no longer mounting a battle against him. They are trying to penetrate walls fortified by God himself. And as a result, his enemies must turn back. In verse number four, David says, For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne judging righteously. How to hope in God's justice, point number one. Know that God is the one who upholds all just causes. Know that God is the one who upholds all just causes. God is a God who is just. God is a God of justice. God can never deny himself or his justice. As a result, everything that is just, everything that is right, emanates from him. And he is the one who upholds that which is just. In verses number 3 to 6 in Psalm number 9, Six times David mentions what God has done. In verses number one to two, David says, I will, I will, I will. But in verses four to six, he rehearses what God has already done. You have, you have, you have, you have maintained my just cause. Because God is the one who upholds all just causes. He is the author of justice and therefore upholds what is right, what is lawful. But he not only upholds what is right and lawful, he also maintains those causes that seek to restore or bring back into balance what is right and lawful. Now, when we grow in spiritual graces, and we are a tree that is firmly planted by streams of living water. What does that tree do? It grows. And that tree, step by step and day by day, gets taller. And as a result, that tree gets closer and closer to heaven and farther and farther away from earth. That means the more that we are sanctified, the more we mature in our knowledge of God, the more our perception of divine and heavenly justice is going to be developed. And the greater and greater appreciation that we have for God's sense of justice, that now means we're going to become more and more attuned to injustice. Because our trees are higher, we can now look down on earth and earth's perception of what is just and right and see that there is something wrong. But not only will our trees become higher and higher, the fruits that that tree bears will be fruits that taste more and more like God's justice. The godly person will yearn, they'll desire to do what is just, to do what is right. And then what happens? Now the enemies come. 
Now the godly person and yearning after to do what is right, they will be falsely accused, they will not be appreciated, and now when a man gets up on a pulpit on a Sunday morning and actually preaches and teaches what the Bible says, the world will say he's a proclaimer of hate speech. He's saying things that are politically incorrect. And here now, the enemies grow and come, trying to attack that tree that is merely doing what God has called it to do. But in spite of that, beloved, in spite of a hostile territory, God is still worthy to be praised because he is the one who maintains all just causes, and he is the one who sits on the throne judging. He sits on the throne judging righteously to maintain all causes that are right and just. And this idea is critically important for anyone involved in Christian service to understand. Because when you do what is right, when you do what is just, and you expect the enemies to grow, what gives you assurance, what gives you confidence, what keeps you walking on the road paved by God's justice is because you know in your mind and trust in your heart that God is the one who will vindicate all just causes. Because if you are in Christian service and you don't trust that God will vindicate all just causes, what now happens? You get discouraged. You develop feelings of self-pity. Now you become cynical. Now you actually begin disdaining and not liking the people you are called to serve. Trust that God is the one who maintains all just causes. Now, at the end of the sermon, I'm going to tell the church that ultimately Psalm number 9 points to Christ because the only one who could earnestly speak to God and say, you have maintained my just cause is Christ. But the point I'm going to make now is this. When we are discerning causes that are just and unjust, the tipping point is never, is God on my side? Rather, the critical point to determine first is, am I, are we on God's side? We start with God, and we start with his conception of justice as revealed in his word first, for he is the ultimate barometer of what is right. We live in a world now where there's a prevailing ideology of social justice. It's an earthly idea, which on the surface doesn't seem all that bad. It seeks to eliminate systemic oppression and take down all the barriers in the world that subjugate and oppress certain people. Social justice is an earthly, natural conception of justice. So we already have a problem. Because in God's world, in God's mind, justice has no adjectives. In God's world, there is no social justice. There's no black justice. There's no white justice. There's no master justice. There's no slave justice. There's just justice, period. Because it's a justice that is not partial. It is universal and applies equally to everyone, everywhere, all the time. Social justice will say things like, if a police officer kills a person of color, Unjustly, that's wrong. Now let's have a protest. And if that murder was not justified, if it was reckless and it was a premeditated murder, that's wrong. That is not just. But what God's justice says is that when a police officer kills a person of color, that's wrong. It's also wrong when a person of color kills a police officer. God's justice says murder is wrong, period, Amen. because
because life, which is colorless, is valuable in the eyes of God. Social justice says, let's reform the world. Let's eliminate systemic oppression. Let's eliminate systemic racism. Let's reform the prison system. God's justice says, even if you could sprinkle magic fairy dust and eliminate racism from the world and completely reform the prison system, if everyone therein does not know Christ and is going to hell anyway, what's the point? That now conception of social justice is actually hatred in disguise and a form of injustice because you have now set the ultimate end as something earthly, not heavenly. The point is that the cause is just if it adheres to God's perfect standard of justice, and he is the one who upholds and maintains that standard. But there's a flip point now. For while God is the one who upholds all causes that are just, he also, point number two, how to hope in God's justice, point number two, know that God eliminates all unjust causes by destroying the perpetrators of the injustice. Know that God eliminates all unjust causes by destroying the perpetrators of the injustice. Verse five says, for you have rebuked the nations, you have destroyed the wicked, you have blotted out their name forever and ever. You may think this verse sounds harsh, but this verse actually demonstrates the grace of God. Why? The text says, first God rebukes. He sounds a trumpet. He gives a warning. It is then that he destroys, and then that he blots out. God being a God who is patient, God being a God who is full of grace, he always sends a warning out first before he unleashes his sword. And here's the key insight to life. Those who are wicked, those who are unjust, they don't listen to the rebuke. They ignore the rebuke. They ignore God's word. They ignore his truth. So when God rebukes them and they don't listen because they don't want to listen, that makes him destroying them just. And who does God blot out? He blots out the wicked, those who hate the light and love the darkness. Verse number six is an increase. It's an augmentation of what verse number five says. David writes, the enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins, and you have uprooted the cities. The very memory of them has perished. So not only does God destroy the wicked, he also uproots and obliterates what the wicked have built and what they have built are cities. Now, what is it that we find in cities? We find in cities, we find built up what men find important. You walk into any city all around the world, what's gonna be the tallest? What's gonna be the prettiest? What's going to be the most luxurious? What's going to be the most protected? What's going to be the thing that looks the most impressive? Not churches. It'll be sports stadiums. It'll be banks. It'll be skyscrapers that try to reach heaven itself, which command a price of $10,000 per square foot. In these cities, you will find built up and fortified things that men find important. And when wicked people come together, they form a wicked nation and build cities based upon a foundation of injustice. Where now in their cities, you have monuments of idolatry and temples of darkness. I remember when my wife and I went to Rome this must have been seven or eight years ago. And we were walking through the cities of ancient Rome and we came to 
the Pantheon. Now you may have seen pictures of this in a magazine or online before, but the Pantheon was where the Romans housed idols to all of their gods. And I remember walking in, and I'll be honest, I was in awe. I said, this is beautiful. You had floors of marble. You had the ceiling with the circular light as if the light of heaven was shining down to see the artistry, to see the detail, to see these idols that were 10, 15 feet high that were chiseled by a master craftsman. It was so impressive to see what the Romans had built in their city. But then as I left the Pantheon that day, while the Romans built the Pantheon, there was a man called Pontius Pilate who was also a Roman. And this was a man who committed one of the most grievous injustices in the history of time where he examined our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, and found no fault in him, and then decided just to do what was politically expedient and to appease the cries of the crowd, sentenced Jesus to death. It was a gross injustice. It was a perversion of the law. It was a perversion of the legal code. And what does church history tell us the Romans would subsequently go on to do after Jesus ascended? They took Christians and they made a mockery of them. They fed them to bears. They fed them to lions. And it was the highlight of the Romans' week to bring Christians in the Circus Maximus and to watch them be mauled by animals. Injustice. And when the wicked come together and build their cities on a foundation of injustice, they are now violating the God who is just. And God is the one who eliminates all unjust causes. Because if you look at ancient Rome now, what used to be a magnificent city is now dust. And you look at everything the wicked back then had built up, it is now reduced to ashes. Now when I went back to the Pantheon, I no longer said how beautiful this is. I said none of these false idols could save the Romans because they are now gone. And any other empire of wickedness that has stood against God has been blotted and wiped out. Babylon to this day is covered in mostly dust because God has uprooted the cities that the wicked built. Okay, preacher. So now we know that God upholds and maintains all just causes. We know that he eliminates and destroys all unjust causes. But what happens now? What do I do? Where do I hope when it seems like God's justice is taking way too long? when injustice seems to be running rampant here on earth. Here's the third point. How to hope in God's justice, point number three. Our confidence is based on divine anticipation, not present deliverance. Our confidence is based on divine anticipation, not present deliverance. Let's make this plain. When Jesus was on the cross, if we were there looking at Jesus being a sinless, innocent man, being nailed to a cross, that was a gross injustice. That was wrong. That was not right because justice was perverted to execute and destroy an innocent man. And if we were eyewitnesses there at the moment, we would be totally and completely right in saying, my Lord and my God, how could you allow this to happen? There would be sorrow, there would be tears. But our hope would not be 
for God to acutely intervene quickly in that moment. Our hope would be in divine anticipation. Our hope would be that God who is sovereign allows particular things to happen that are hard to deal with, that are hard to look at, knowing that everything happens according to God's plan, and he back then had a plan to amend and correct that injustice by raising his son from the dead. We hope not necessarily in a quick fix. We hope that God's will will be done. We hope knowing that God is the one who created time, therefore time works for God. We hope not looking for a quick, immediate fix, immediately in the second for an injustice. Lest we not project our sense of time onto a timeless God. That does not mean we sit passively back and do nothing. That does not mean we are fatalists and simply remain in our prayer closets without acting positively for those who are hurting and for those who are needy. That means our hope is ultimately in divine anticipation, not present deliverance. And that hope is real because every person on the face of planet Earth ultimately will answer to God. There is an appointment set for every person that's ever born. That is an appointment set in eternity that a person cannot delay, they can't reschedule, they cannot change. When every person will stand before God and make an account for what they have done. Let's get real. We live in a world where it's very easy to look around and to become overwhelmed when it seems as if injustice, wickedness, and darkness are winning. And we become impatient, projecting our sense of hasty justice on God. We live in a world where people walk around championing their right to murder innocent children, where legislators pervert justice and they use a legal code to say it's okay to commit infanticide through abortion. That's injustice. We live in a world where legislators use legal code to redefine something into an existence that God created, marriage. And they'll say that gay marriage is okay. Side note, my suggestion to all Christians is that we should never refer to that unholy union as gay marriage, because if it's gay, it's not marriage. God is the one who defined what marriage is. But legislators use legal power to pervert that which is just. We live in a world where men walk into a church and sit and listen to Sunday school for an hour and then either shoot everyone up or they bomb the building. We live in a world where Satanists pretend to be priests and then use their positions of power to molest and to destroy the hearts and minds of young children. We live in a world where, preach, or where so-called preachers that God never called get up on pulpits Sunday after Sunday and preach a man-centered, Christ-less gospel and tell people exactly what they want to hear. We live in a world where people treat other people differently based upon their sex, based upon what they look like, based upon where they were born, based upon what their skin color is. There are so many things in this world, so many injustices that we may desire an immediate fix right now for. But the way we hope in God's justice is not for present deliverance. 
It is for divine anticipation. Because we know that because God is the one who sits on the throne, that evil can never triumph, that wickedness cannot win, and that darkness is marked for destruction before it speaks its first lie. Now let's make sure we're clear about something. Our hope in God's justice is not soft. It's not passive. It's not weak. Our hope in God's justice is not ignorant. That hope actually has teeth. Because none of the wicked, none of the injustice, none of the darkness can ever win as long as God eternally sits on the throne. God is holy. He is just. And the holiness of God demands that when he sees sin and injustice, he must judge it. And God, by his grace, has opened the path to salvation for anyone who hears and responds to the gospel, but for anyone who rejects salvation through Jesus Christ. They ultimately will face their maker because they cannot change their appointment with God, and that injustice will be dealt with. When we hope in divine anticipation, that means God's truth will trample the unrepentant. God's power will pierce their hearts and drive them onto the depths of Sheol, and the hammer of God's holiness will break and shatter their bones and annihilate their teeth so that all the reprobate who rejected Jesus on earth and who forgot God in their day-to-day -day lives will remember that God is God in Sheol forever. That hope is real. That hope has power. That hope has omnipotence behind it. So although it may seem like injustice is winning at the moment, that is only temporary. For while the unjust are but for a moment, the Lord abides forever. Now in verses 3 to 6, David is looking out horizontally. He's looking at the injustices, the wicked, and the nations of the world. Now in verse 7, the, the hope begins to develop its greatest fullness as he looks up to heaven and casts his eyes on God. Verse 7 says, But the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. Verse number 7 tells us that not only does God have the authority and power to be judged, he has established his throne for judgment. Number two, he also will act as the judge, who number three will not only be the judge, who pronounces the sentence, but he will also be the one who executes that sentence. For he will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. Here's a fourth point. How to hope in God's justice, point number four. Trust in the reality that God is always on the throne. Trust in the reality that God is always on the throne. He's not getting up, he's never getting up, and no one can usurp him. If God reigns, hope is possible, and because God reigns, our hope is assured. For as Paul says in Acts 17.31, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. That man is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So anyone who believes in him will not bear the full force of God's justice. They will receive the gift of salvation but for anyone who denies or refuses that man will receive justice. And the crucial thing to realize here is that when God judges the world, he will do so in righteousness, in truth, 
in perfection, in holiness. God is the most just judge there is. When God judges in righteousness, he's not going to act like an unjust judge who's using an imperfect standard of justice, who's going to be partial to one party or the, the other. When God judges in righteousness, it will be a perfect and divine standard of truth. And that will be with equity or evenness. So all those who are high and exalt themselves will be brought down low. And all those who are broken and who are oppressed will be brought up to where God has called them to be. We should imitate David when we see injustice around us and look up and always cast our eyes on the heavenly throne above, knowing that God is in total control of what happens here on earth. There are people who may escape the truth they may escape the courts, they may escape the police, they may escape responsibility here and now, but as long as God sits on the throne, they can never run from God Almighty. As John Calvin once wrote, the psalmist says, God sitteth forever, by which he means that however high the violence of men may be carried, and although their fury may burst forth without measure, they can never drag God from his seat. So while we trust in the reality that God sits on the throne forever, let us also be mindful, church, that whenever God judges, he starts with his own first. Before Jesus comes back and he judges the world in righteousness, he's not going to begin with the world at large. He's going to refine, he's going to purify, and he's going to deal with his elect first before he unleashes his sword and deals with the world. Okay, preacher, I'm following the message so far. So you told me that God maintains all just causes. He destroys all unjust ones. And that ultimately our hope is not in present deliverance, it's in divine anticipation. But what about earthly reality right now? If I'm trusting God and anticipating what he's going to do, what if I'm hurting now? What if I'm broken now? What if I feel dismayed and oppressed right now? Where do I go? Where do I find refuge? The answer is in the stronghold that is God. Verse number nine says, the Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. God told us in Genesis chapter three, there will always be enmity. There will always be a gap separating the children of light from the children of darkness. Therefore, there will always be injustice. There will always be oppression. So what God now does is he offers his own protection to his own people, knowing that enmity exists. Point number five, how to hope in God's justice. Point number five, seek refuge in God's stronghold. God's stronghold is for the oppressed. That means those who are crushed. Crushed spiritually, crushed psychologically, crushed emotionally. And the irony is only the oppressed will seek refuge in God's stronghold because the oppressors are too busy oppressing. Because the oppressors are too busy building their own strongholds. And this word stronghold, it speaks of a height. It speaks of a fortress that's inaccessibly high. I want you to visualize in your mind a fort that's on top of a mountain that's high, high, high. 
And that mountain has steep, steep slopes, almost like a needle projecting all the way up. So no man by his own effort is able to climb or scale that mountain. That's what God is telling us here in his word, that in times of trouble, he will be a stronghold, a place in which we are secure because it is inaccessibly high. And because we are high, that means we are closer to God and farther away than our earthly enemies. What God is telling us here is simple. In times of strife, do not build your own stronghold, but instead flee to God. And God does not build a stronghold, leave you alone, and go back up to heaven. The text says God is the stronghold. He is the one who puts himself on the line for his sheep. The text says God will be a stronghold in times of trouble, meaning what? God's protection is timely. The text does not say God will be a stronghold when you're prosperous and happy and smiling. No, he will be a stronghold in times of trouble, meaning exactly when you need it is when God has already prepared a place for you. Now the reality is, beloved, that your first night in God's stronghold is always going to be the hardest. When you travel to go somewhere on vacation for a conference, you travel from, for work, and you find yourself in a hotel room, a strange place, a lot of folks will have, t have trouble falling asleep. Why? Because it's, it's a strange environment. You're not used to it. You don't know if you're truly safe. You don't know if the lock on the door is actually going to hold. And the irony is, when you, like King David, find yourself in trouble and flee to God's stronghold, that first night is going to be the hardest. Because unlike when you go on vacation, you don't know how long you're going to be in the stronghold. You can plan your vacation and know you'll be in Costa Rica for four days. But when you walk in the strongholds, you may be there for four days, for four weeks, or for four years. You look around the stronghold walls and you wonder, are these walls going to hold? You hear the enemies down below screaming and yelling. They say, we want your head. And you have your reservations. You have your doubts. If you're actually going to be safe, in God's stronghold. But after that first night, you wake up, you're in one piece. You're safe. So then the next night comes, you fall asleep a little bit faster. And the next night comes, and the next night comes, and the next night comes, and you soon realize that in this alien stronghold that is God, you are more safe than you've been at any other point in your life. Now you are at peace. Now you're comfortable. Now you truly and earnestly trust God that his stronghold is the best place that you ought to be. And the faithful seek refuge in God's stronghold because they know those who seek refuge in God are never, ever forsaken. Verse 10 says, And those who know your name will put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Here's, the, here's God's logic. God's logic is in verse 10. If you know him, you trust him. If you know who God is, then you trust him. The better you know God, the more you trust him. The text says, if you know God, you will trust him. If you trust him, you will seek him. If you seek him, you are never forsaken and are safe in his stronghold. And here now is the best part. The longer you spend in God's stronghold, the better you know him. Which means the better and better that you trust him. Point number six. How to hope in God's justice. Point number six. Know God. 
Very simple. How to open God's justice. Point number six, you have to know God. When I say know God, I don't mean knowing facts. I don't mean being able to recite a Bible verse. I'm referring to an intimacy with the heart. And what are we knowing? We're knowing God's name. When you know God's name, when you know all the glorious names in the Bible, like El Elyon used in Psalm number 9, you are now familiar with all of God's attributes. And you then trust the one who is trustworthy to always be the characters his name speak to. There's a reason why our Lord Jesus became flesh. He incarnated. Because you and I, as flesh and bones human beings, could never really be able to know God if he did not become flesh, if he did not become real, where we could now touch him and speak to him and kiss his feet and shake his hand and sit down and eat with him. Your knowledge of God is not going to become real until that knowledge becomes flesh. Until you knowing what you read about in the Bible, you now start with God's word, you begin with his truth, but now that truth animates experience. Now you read about God in the Bible, you believe and trust in him, and then you then walk into the stronghold, and now with experience, now living God's truth, that knowledge becomes flesh, that knowledge becomes real. And now you truly know God, not just with your mind, not a cold, indifferent intellectual knowledge, but a, a fullness of mind and affection of heart and an engagement of will. Because while the, the logic of the Bible says those who know God will trust him, the flip side of that is also true, that those who don't know God won't trust him. Speaking as a medical doctor, I can tell you, cancer, heart disease, and smoking, they are all dangerous. But what's more dangerous than all of those three is ignorance. There are some cancers you can cure. You can have stents and fix heart disease. You can take a prescription gum and stop smoking. But spiritual ignorance will not only destroy you now, you will feel the wrath of God in eternal condemnation forever. Because those who are ignorant of God don't trust him, and those who don't trust God will perish. Spiritual ignorance or ignorance of God is the worst form of ignorance there is because it leads to unbelief, it leads to sin, and it ultimately leads to death. I say all that to say, know God. How we hope in God's justice is we know God, and the better God is known, the more we trust him. As Thomas Watson once wrote, quote, faith is an intelligent grace, end quote. Now the line I'm about to quote to you is brilliant. It's not mine. It comes from a commentary somewhere. For the life of me, I could not find who wrote this or where I read it. But this is good. Write this down. Some person wrote this. This is wonderful. Quote, those who know God farther than they can see him will trust him farther than they can see him. End quote. Again, those who know God farther than they can see him will trust him farther than they can see him, end quote. Church, the bulk of our doubts, the bulk of our reservations, the bulk of our fears, the bulk of our dim perceptions that make us less than what God has called us to be in our earthly lives, a bulk of it stems from not knowing God. God never changes. His stronghold never ceases from being eternally reliable. But what does change is our trusting in him as a function of not knowing him. 
So how we hope is to know God, because the only person who can be maximally useful and content in the midst of chaos, ungodliness, and strife is a person who is fully persuaded that God is God and that God is judging righteously and that he will care for his own. Now, I don't know how you feel about highlighting or making a mark on your Bible, but this verse I'm about to read has power. This verse has the power to transform you because God is speaking and gives us one of the most hope-infusing, joy-cultivating promises in the entire Bible. For you, O Lord, have not, never will, never have, you, O Lord, have not forsaken, have not forsaken those who seek you. God forsook his own son on the cross, Matthew 27, 46, so that he would never, ever forsake his people. And when I say seek God, when we talk about seeking God, that simply means reading God's word, that simply means speaking to God in prayer, it means sitting under and listening to God's word. It means fellowshipping with God's people in the body of saints. And it means seeking God by walking in the path that God walked. Translation, following God's commandments and living God. Because the person who earnestly seeks God will never be forsaken because the reason why a person seeks God is because they've been called by God, is because the shepherd has gone first and called out to a sheep, and now the innocent sheep hears the sound of the shepherd and comes to the voice that called him or her. And he will never forsake the one whom he has called. This promise of not forsakenness is one of the most reassuring in the Bible. This verse does not say, get your act together, then seek God. This verse does not say, you have to be perfect, then seek God. This verse does not say that your life must be a highlight of Christendom, then seek God. The, first, the verse simply says, all those who seek God, he will not forsake. And that is a promise to treasure in our minds and our hearts because the devil loves the lie, God has forsaken you. Because if you believe that, and you believe that God will abandon you and will reject you, then you won't seek him. That means you're left to your own devices. That means you're not in his stronghold. That means you are not safe. But God tells us over and over again in his word that those who earnestly seek him by faith will never be turned away. Church, real Christian maturity does not come when someone looks at themselves in the mirror and say, look at me, look at how religious I've become. Real Christian maturity comes when you get so close to God, you realize there was an infinite gap between a sinful creature and a sinless, perfect, holy, and true God. And the more you get to know God, the more you realize that gap is the size of infinity. But in spite of the fact that a gap was so big, what did God do? He sent his son to atone for sin to now close the gap, to be a bridge between God our Father and here now on earth. And once you realize who God is and what God has done, you realize, of course, he would never forsake those who sought after him because he did all that not to forsake his own, but to bring them back home into fellowship with him. As God says in Isaiah 49, 15, just as a mother 
will never forsake or forget a child nursing at her bosom. God will never forsake one of his own children. Beloved, God would never have done so much for his church. God would never have done so much in salvation. God would never have done so much for you to forsake you. For those who seek him will never be forsaken. And what's the response to that? Praise. What's the response to that? We rejoice. That's exactly what David does. Verse 11. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare among the people his deeds. David was praising in verses 1 to 2, and he's back to praising in, verses, in verse number 11 because he knows when he seeks God, he is not forsaken, and therefore he exalts God again in the, mit, in the mouth of Leviathan. Final verse this morning is verse number 12. For he who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Final point, how to hope in God's justice, point number seven. Delight in the reality that God not only never forsakes those who seek him, he also never forgets them. How to hope in God's justice, point number seven. Delight in the reality that God not only never forsakes those who seek him, he also never forgets them. When we talk about God's justice and how to hope in it in the, middle, in the midst of an unjust world, the one thing we have not yet addressed are martyrs. What happens to those individuals who seemingly are not preserved in God's stronghold, but rather are allowed to be struck down by the sword? Which is an injustice, which is wrong, which is not right. If their only quote-unquote crime was their faith in Jesus Christ. And the way we hope in God's justice is that even after these martyrs die, they are never, ever forgotten by God. Because there, there is a day coming when God will act as an avenger and avenge all the injustices all of the murder of the martyrs that has, a hap that has happened here on earth. And in that day, God will expose everything that has, done, has been done in secret and everything that has been done unjustly. Isaiah 26, 21 and Jeremiah 51, 35. God is omniscient, meaning he is all-knowing, meaning God can't forget if he wanted to because he knows everything eternity past to eternity future. And even after martyrs die, God still remembers them and hears their cry. From a heavenly standpoint, for those who are martyred on earth, God brings them home to him. So although they may be dead on earth, they are alive in heaven. Although family members, although churches, although missionary organizations, although children, although loved ones will shed a tear on earth, God brings them into paradise for eternity. But even when they go into heaven, they're not dead because they are alive with God forever. And God still hears their cry because he doesn't forget them. Even in heaven, the afflicted cry out and God remembers their cry and what happened to them on earth. We know that because this is what Revelation 6, 9 to 11 says. When the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the, 
the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. And when that completion is done, when we anticipate what God will do in the end, when that time has come to its appointed end, that is when Christ will come back. When the, when the Son of the Most High will not come back as a defenseless baby, but he will come back with the scepter in his right hand of, as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And when Jesus comes back, all those who reject God will not only know, they will feel just how precious the blood of God's afflicted is in his eyes. The afflicted are never forsaken, they are never forgotten, and justice is never denied. In closing, I mentioned at the top that Psalm number nine ultimately points forward to Christ because only Christ could say, for you have maintained my just cause. And what was Christ's just cause? His just cause was the rescue mission for humanity. It was a rescue mission that began in the fullness of time, that began at an appointed time, that was maintained for an appointed time, and which ended when God declared it would end. And when Jesus acted as our sinless substitute on the cross, God was judging righteously on his throne. And God judged justly all of our sins that Jesus bore in our place. And the wrath of God was completely unleashed on the Son to atone for sin. And then Jesus died. But the same justice of God that forsook Jesus so he could pay for our sins, the same justice of God realized that because Jesus was sinless and he did nothing wrong, that when he was in the tomb, the unjust thing to do would be to keep an innocent man dead. So the same justice that forsook Jesus is the same justice that rolled the stone, of wet, stone away and released Christ from the tomb. He is risen, church. He is risen. He is risen is the everlasting testimony that the justice of God never, ever fails. It may be tough. It may be hard working through it. But in the end, he is risen. As a result, the justice of God never, ever fails. Now, we look to the risen one, the embodiment of God's perfect justice. Jesus will forever bear the marks in his wrists and his feet of God's justice. And we now look to him who has all authority and power in heaven and on earth. When we look to Christ, God's justice is eternal, it's omnipotent, it's living, it's breathing, it's vibrant, and it never fails because God's justice emanates from God himself. And God is the one whom we love. God is the one whom we trust. God is the one whom we serve. He is risen. Our prayer comes again from the Puritan classic, Valley of Vision. And knowing that God is the answer for everything and he is our stronghold, he is all-sufficient, 
The closing prayer is called, God All-Sufficient. Let us pray. O Lord of grace, the world is before me this day, and I am weak and fearful, but I look to thee for strength. If I venture forth alone, I stumble and fall, but on the beloved arms I am firm as the eternal hills. If left the treachery of my heart, I shall shame thy name, but if enlightened, guided, upheld by the Spirit, I shall bring thee glory. Be thou my arm to support, my strength to stand, my light to see, my feet to run, my shield to protect, my sword to repel, my sun to warm. To enrich me will not diminish thy fullness. All thy loving kindness is in thy Son. I bring him to thee in the arms of faith. I urge his saving name as the one who died for me. I plead his blood to pay my debts of wrong, accept his worthiness for my unworthiness, his sinlessness for my transgressions, his purity for my uncleanness, his sincerity for my guile, his truth for my deceits, his meekness for my pride, his constancy for my backslidings, his love for my enmity, his fullness for my emptiness, his faithfulness for my treachery, his obedience for my lawlessness, his glory for my shame, his devotedness for my waywardness, his holy life for my unchaste ways, his righteousness for my dead works, his death for my life. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. We do hope that you have been enriched and equipped by the preaching of Dr. Sadoffel. For more valuable resources, please visit WCSK.org. Until next time, peace be with you, and to God be the glory forever.